Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Stanford Wyatt from uh, August, pa- August Partners and Rational Research. Uh, Stanford, how's it going? Good, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, no, it's great to have you on. You know, uh, let me start the way I do every podcast, and that's by pitching you. And I'm just going to continue what I was telling you before the uh, before we start recording. You know, Rational Research is what I mainly know you from, and uh, I know you run August Partners, which is a small partnership on the side, and we can certainly talk about that. But you know, Rational Research, I've just really been enjoying it. You've been doing it for several months now, and the way I kind of describe it is once a week, you put out what I call a micro macro piece where it's looking at something macro economics from how one or two kind of micro firms are talking about it. So the example I was trying to think of was uh, this week's was you use sports betting data trends from New Jersey and New York City to get some uh, insight into how sports betting is trending overall. And I think you also had some consumer luxury good stuff from Tiffany, Louis Vuitton, and uh, even an RV piece on Lazy Days results. So I've just really been enjoying it. And you get those micro macro pieces. Plus, I think you've done about three deep dive fundamental pieces so far, which uh, we'll talk about one or two of those today. I read every issue and it's priced at free, which is you know, <laughs> it's just the perfect price for me. So uh, no, look, that pitch out the way, Stanford, maybe you could go a little bit into your background on how August Partners and Rational Research came around. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And thanks, thanks for the kind words. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work as well and, and listening to, to the podcast. And uh, so I appreciate the invite. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, I, you know, my, my day job is, is managing a, a partnership, uh, an investment firm called August Partners Investment Management. Um, and then, yeah, I started, uh, you know, rational research um, a, a few months back, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, I guess through the framework of just kind of helping my, my investment uh, process, uh, you know, for my, uh, for my partnership. And so, um, as you mentioned, the weekly piece, a lot of us just looking for, for facts and kind of what, you know, do they roll up to any bigger, bigger themes, bigger investment themes that might kind of influence my, um, you know, my investment decision-making. Um, and then also just, you know, kind of getting, getting more involved in the, in the FinTwit community and, um, you know, seeing if there's anybody else out there that might kind of care about those specific companies or themes and, and, and do they have any feedback? And then, um, yeah, occasionally, you know, the, the individual, um, stock thesis piece, I mean, writing's always been a big part of my investment process and, um, is helpful in clarifying my thinking and, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's part of it. And then the other part is, is, is same idea of just trying to get more feedback and in touch with other people that might, um, might have some insight on those particular companies. And so I'm hoping I can do more, uh, more write-ups on, on individual companies in the, you know, in the coming months. And, um, it, it's been fun. And, uh, and then, yeah, so in my background, um, so I started the, the, the partnership and the, the partnership and the investment firm about two years ago. Uh, prior to that, I worked for a, a long short, um, fund, uh, here in Seattle for over 10 years doing fundamental research and, um, and, you know, building my, my network and my, um, investment, uh, uh framework. So, um, that's a little bit of, of my background. Cool. And then August Partners, so that's the your, as I call it, your, your day job. Most yep. of your time's focused there. How, uh, like, kind of how focused do you got, do you run it? Pretty focused. Um, you know, it's the, the number of names, um, you know, varies, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll say, you know, 10 to 15 long positions and, and um, I can, can and do, do short. So those will be smaller positions and, and maybe higher number of, of individual positions there, but, um, but yeah, pretty concentrated, um, uh, fund and, and do a lot of, you know, deep fundamental, um, analysis, just looking for opportunities that are, that are mispriced, um, you know, in, in the, uh, in the public market. So, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of reasons that, uh, companies could be mis- mispriced, whether it's just liquidity or short-term concerns or, um, uh, you know, financials that don't really tell the whole story, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, my, my process is just, is, is focused around looking for high quality businesses that, that may be mispriced for a particular reason. And then I also care a lot about the people involved. I mean, the, the insiders, um, you know, what's their behavior. I think the, the behavioral aspect can be pretty predictive of, of what might happen in the future and is not necessarily always, um, 
you know, I was, I was priced in. It's not the easiest thing for the sell side to write about. And uh, so I, I care a lot about, you know, who, who the, who the people are that are involved and kind of what their behaviors are. Um, and then just looking for, for, you know, risk reward setups that are, that are favorable. Um, yeah, no, look, I think management is one of the things that's been ingrained in me the hardest over time. Like there's only so many times you can invest in something that's trading at 20 cents on the dollar only to watch management take 90 cents of that dollars and put it into their pockets or yeah. just li- light it all on fire until you realize like, oh my gosh, like, you know, not everyone has to be Jeff Bezos or something. Yeah. But if you're investing with the absolute worst, like you'll get lucky every now and then. And you know, they'll decide to sell, they'll decide to sell and that 20 cents becomes the dollar. But most yep. of the time they're going to find a way to make that dollar shrink into five cents or 10 cents. And you're actually not going to profit. Let yeah. me ask you, uh, Rational Research, obviously, it's an outgrowth of all the work you do at August Partners. Uh, you know, the two write-ups that come to mind and the two that I think we're going to talk about on the fundamental side were the piece on Nordstrom, which I think will be yep. our focus today, and maybe a little bit of the piece on Tile Shop. Yep. And both of those are kind of, you know, old-line retailers. We can call them at, at a high-level view. So uh, you run concentrated 10 to 15 position. How much of it is like in in more older world, older type value names, and how much of it is going to shift into more like you know, what's probably more popular today, the growthy tech stock names, or is it just the blend? How do you look at that? Yeah, you know, it's it's a blend and I'm open-minded. I mean, you know, I guess all things considered, I don't really, you know, look at kind of growth versus value or that sort of thing. I mean, I think it's all kind of, you know, ingrained or, you know, intertwined. I mean, I'm happier to pay higher multiple for for higher growth type companies. Um you know, again, it's it's kind of what what can I find that's that's really mispriced, and I guess a lot of that really high growth kind of SaaS stuff that um, you know that has great management, great you know visionary founder type type leaders, but a lot of that stuff seems to be pretty you know fairly valued. If I even if I extrapolate, kind of growth growth trends continue for for quite a while, and so. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm open-minded and then just looking for mispricings. I guess that's kind of led me to a couple of these, um, as you said, you know, older, old, old school, um, retailers that, uh, that I've written about and, um, you know, I've, I've followed both those companies for quite a long time as well, but I guess one of the, one of the frameworks I've been thinking about recently is just kind of these epicenter type companies that were just right in the crosshairs of, of COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, brick, brick and mortar, retail. And, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, second quarter, you know, first end of first quarter, second quarter, kind of that's, you know, if you survive that, you're, you've probably got an enduring business on your hands. Right. And I look at, you know, Nordstrom, um, who was closed for half the days in, in the second quarter and actually generated positive free cash flow, which, um, is pretty amazing. I mean, again, speaks to just kind of the nimbleness of uh, of the management taking action, and and obviously you've got high insider ownership there, and a family that's that's owned the business for a hundred plus years. Um, you know, they're incentivized to obviously do what's best to survive. Right? I mean, they're not, they don't want to take existential risk when they have you know six or seven hundred million dollars or more. You know, hopefully more if the stock goes up, but of equity value on the line there, and so. Um, I guess that's kind of, you know, I guess to summarize how I came to those kind of two companies is, is just looking through that framework of companies that have been able to adapt and will endure. And then when they come out on the backside of this, I mean, there's a lot less competition. They've probably learned a lot how to improve their digital business and, and that sort of thing. So, And I, I don't want to go into Nordstrom too much yet because I want to talk a little bit more about rational research, but let me, let me dive into one of the points you made there. So you said, uh, you know, management's really incentivized to come to this. They own a lot of the stock. Uh, it's Nordstrom's family. I think, uh, it, was it John Nordstrom, the founder, who founded in like 19, 1900, 1901? Yep. You know, they've been around for over 100 years. Yep. Uh, the family owns a third of the shares. They're very incentivized. And normally that's a great thing. But I also do worry, you know, I think of like a newspaper family in the early 2000s where they owned a lot of the newspaper shares. And they said, you know what? The newspaper industry looks bleak right now, but we've been delivering print to your doors for over a hundred years, and our family's <laughs> done that. And we're going to double down. We're going to go buy all these newspapers at valuations. Or, you know, a, a current example would be something like um, Dillard's, right? Dillard's, yeah. which is a, a, another old line department store. I think they don't. I don't even. They barely had an online sales component then until COVID started. And yeah. maybe you looked at that pre-COVID and said, "Oh, a lot of online shopping is at a loss. They don't really have competitive advantages." But you know. I, I look at them and I say, oh, maybe this is a family that's too wed to 
this is the way our family's always done it. For Dillard's, I think all of the family members are like 80 years old and on the board. Yep. But, you know, yep. do you worry about that with Nordstrom's or just in general? Like the family control, yes, they're economically aligned, but maybe they don't move as fast as they should because they just have an older way view of the world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, that's definitely a concern. And I think, you know, they've invested a lot in their in their digital business over the years. And I guess, you know, I, I think they're they're smart. I mean, you know, they're, they're headquartered in Seattle, you know, a couple blocks from Amazon, right? And I know yeah. I'm sure they lo- lose a ton of people to Amazon constantly. And so they're not, they, I don't think they have their head in their sands to realize kind of what's what's going on there and, and the, you know, the future of e-commerce and brick and mortar retailing and all that. But I guess, you know, a, a bigger concern for me is just that, you know, they have invested in, in e-commerce and I think trying to bring their business into the future a little bit. And it just hasn't, you know, they haven't grown as fast as, you know, yep. even if you look at last year and a kind of normalized year, I think their digital business grew 7%, right? And if you just use, you know, Amazon's North American business as a proxy grew 21% last year, right? So, yep. I mean, it's just, they're kind of lagging. And then, um, you know, even now in the recent quarters, you see a lot of these kind of, you know, legacy brick and mortar retailers that have an online component that's grown, you know, 100% or more. And, you know, Nordstrom didn't, didn't come close to matching that. And, um, probably a lot of that's apparel is not, you know, not the best segment to be probably would be one of the last to recover out of this thing. But, um, I guess that to me is, is, is the bigger concern is just that that they might be a share loser, um, for, for whatever reason, as opposed to, I, I don't think that they're, um, kind of delusional, um, with what's going on in the world with, with e-commerce and, um, the shift to digital. I mean, you know, if you look at, last year was, you know, digital was a third of their revenue and in the second quarter was 60% of the revenue. So, I mean, they're, they're there. I mean, they have a good, you know, a good offering, but, um, uh, you know, I just don't know if they're, are they, are they losing share? I guess that's, that's my biggest concern when I think about this as a, as an investment. No, I, I agree. Like, look, I, I think a lot of their buy online pickup and store stuff, even before the crisis, I think was better than 99% of their competitors or something, you know, I think yeah. they were doing stuff, but you, you do worry like, uh, and again, I want to ask one more thing on rational research and then we'll do yeah. it. Terms, but sure. Like they invested what, like $500 million into a New York city flagship store. And they started yeah. that investment in like 2016 and it just yeah. finished. Unfortunately it opens like literally the day before the crisis or something. Yeah. Right. But yeah. sell $500 million into a physical retail store while like Lord and Taylor is going bankrupt around right. the corner from there. Yeah. And you wonder I get what they were saying with it, but were they a little too wedded to the vision of the Nordstrom's in the center of Seattle versus what the future was when you invest that much money? I mean, $500 million is a lot of money to invest into a store. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, by the time that all got wrapped up, maybe that was something they wish they hadn't have start, you know, maybe the world, the world was looking different in 2014 or 15 or whenever they kind of started that, that project. Right. And you have, you know, you have Macy's Herald Square and you have, you know, Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue, all these stores that have a big kind of Manhattan presence. And, you know, they've talked about New York being such a big market for them and they get an e-commerce yeah. uplift from having, um, you know, as you had noted, an e-commerce uplift from having that, that physical presence in New York city. And, um, but yeah, I, you know, it, it's hard to say if that's a, if that's a five-year lead time project, maybe by the time they got down to the end, it, it, you know, was something they otherwise wouldn't have done. Um, but you know, I mean, they have a hundred, you know, they closed 16 stores in this last quarter. They have a hundred kind of class A mall locations with their, with their full line stores. I mean, I guess I just don't, it's not overstored, right. In the, in the context of, you know, thousands of, of retail locations, right. I mean, they have pretty good locate with their, with their full line stores, um, pretty good locations that, we'll see. I mean, if, if, you know, they, they are exposed to the mall, um, but uh, I, I just don't think that they're uh, in a, in a terrible, terrible spot with their real estate. Um, yeah. And, um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, you know, management, maybe that wasn't the best decision. We'll see how it all plays out. And maybe they, they do lose some, some competitors there in Manhattan that might, help market share over, over time, but, uh, we'll see. Cool. No, I agree with you there. And we'll, we'll come back to, uh, Nordstrom's in one second. I just want to ask you one last thing on rational research. You know, uh, one of the things I like about it, as I said, was you do these weekly, I call them the macro micro looks, right. Where you use what one or two companies are saying to look at something micro. And, you know, I think in like, if you were doing this in 2019, 
I don't think I would have learned as much from it, right? But I think one of the interesting things in the 2020 COVID environment, I mean, it's like nothing anyone has ever seen before. I don't think yep. many of us imagined what it would be like. Yeah. Uh, is there anything in particular that these kind of micro macro dives have taught you or anything that was kind of unexpected when you've done them? No, you know, again, I, you know, it's kind of part of my investment process just to look at really, you know, what are the facts? I think, um, you know, Wall Street gets so hung up on, you know, beat by a penny, missed by a penny or, you know, forgetting about the fundamentals and panic over, you know, case counts or whatever it might be. Right. So I, I think just doing this weekly and kind of, you know, if I'm, invested in Nordstrom as an example, you know, what are the other brick and mortar retailers actually saying, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what, are the, what are the comps? What what are the trends that they're talking about? And so it's helpful just to keep, you know, for me, just to keep revisiting the actual facts and trends that companies are talking about. Um, so just doing this, you know, again, it, it helps me to, to, to stay focused on, on the facts. And then maybe if you, you know, if you get enough of these tidbits, you can kind of roll them up to, uh, to an overall theme, um, in an industry or, or sector that's, that's happening. But, um, but yeah, you know, I guess, you know, to your point, there's th this year has been, been pretty wild in terms of just the, the share shifts and everything else that have gone on. So I think constantly kind of looking, um, looking at these reports is, is pretty eye opening, And I think, um, a lot of times it, it goes, you know, a little bit overlooked by, um, maybe general population. So it can, you know, can lead to some interesting opportunities. Yep. Perfect. Okay. Well, uh, that out the way, let's dive a little bit further into Nordstrom. You know, I, I'm sure most people know Nordstrom, they, they think of it and they think of the department store. Uh, if I told anyone, or if you told anyone, Hey, I'm looking to invest into Nordstrom's. The, the first thing I think they would say is, physical retail is dead. And they yep. probably would have said this in 2019. Yep. And then especially in 2020, they would have said, hey, you know, everything's going online. Amazon's yep. going to eat everything. So I guess when you're looking to buy Nordstrom's, what's the first thing that gives you comfort that, you know, physical retail is not dead? Um, you know, I guess there's quite a few. I mean, you can, again, you can look at results of peers. You can look at, you know, re results here. I mean, there's, you know, the category leaders coming out of this um, are seeing sales increase, um, both, you know, at, at brick and mortar stores and, and online. And then, you know, combination of the two can be, can be pretty powerful. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's a piece of it. I think you can look at any of the e-commerce players, you know, Amazon, obviously buying whole foods and opening up their, their go stores and everything else, um, give some, you know, some credence to having a, a physical presence and, and the value of that, um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of other examples. If you think about, you know, um, Warby Parker and, and Bonobos and Blue Nile and a lot of the kind of legacy online players that started opening stores because it's cheaper cost to advertising, right? When the Google clicks for diamond ring, you know, skyrocket in value, get more impressions, you know, having a spot in the mall, um, for a lower cost than you do, you know, paying, paying Google. Um, so, you know, I think, so yeah, I mean, combination of things, but I, I think uh, people always want the experience. I think there's certain categories that, you know, maybe lend themselves better to shopping in, in person um, as opposed to buying commodity books or, um, you know, computers online maybe makes more sense. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not arguing that the U.S., you know, is probably overstored, over retailed. I think that, you know, that's probably true. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the weaker hands may have been washed out here in the last six months or so. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I think it makes, it makes sense from a um, operational perspective. And I think consumers are always going to want the experience of, of shopping in person to some extent. So I, I think what you just made was the the famous clicks to bricks argument, right? Where, you know, I think even Nordstrom's has said it, like if we open a physical store somewhere, online sales go up 20% because you get mm -hmm. the, you know, you get the advertising of people driving by the storefront. Uh, it becomes easier for people to do returns and exchanges. It, it just, it boosts the brand. So that's the clicks to bricks argument. So let's say I can see that, which I think most people have conceded, you know, there Warby Parker rolled out stores, Bonobos rolled out stores. Like there's a reason all these digital only places rolled out stores. Untucked is another one I think of, but yep. so I, I'm going to concede that point, but I think the counter to that would be, okay, but Nordstrom's is a department store, right? They are not a uh, online brand. They're, 
They're not Whole Foods where people are going once a week to get food. They are a department store. And if I look at department stores, Sears, JCPenney, Lord & Taylor, Neiman Marcus, like bankrupt, 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 bankrupt. And that's just a start. Uh, Macy's, even before the pandemic, I think they were going to close something like 15% of their stores or something, 125 stores. Uh, you know, everyone was trying to close down department stores. So why is Neiman Market, or sorry, why is Nordstrom's different? Why, why are they a winner here? You know, I guess... I kind of would frame that just in the in the context of downside protection. Right? I mean, you look at this company's endured for 120 120 years, as you said. Um, the the family owns 30 percent of it. Um, you know, they're not taking existential risk with the balance sheet. They've got a lot of the debt is 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 pretty far termed out. Um, they have been investing in, you know, improving their technology in, in the future. And then, like I said earlier, I think, you know, 100 stores in in the Class A mall locations is probably one of the, you know, better positioned um, department stores. And, you know, if if the Class A malls continue to do okay, I think that's a decent position to be in. Um and and then you know 250 rack locations again not a not a huge number in the big context of you know TJ Maxx has whatever 3,000 stores in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so not you know not a huge uh, f- physical footprint and then um, you know again the, the company has endured and so um, you know some of the other companies you mentioned that have filed bankruptcy recently maybe didn't have the same kind of alignment or or you know history there so. Um, you know, I think that's part of it. And I think just, again, I mean, the price begs the question, right? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not like this thing is priced to, um, you know, be the next, uh, um, you know, Lululemon or anything, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost priced like people don't think it's going to survive. So I guess all those things kind of roll up to, um, maybe answer your question, maybe not. Yeah, no, look, I, I think one of the things I, I like about it and not to like interpret your words for you, but uh, Nordstrom, all of their full full price stores, department stores, almost exclusively are class A, a malls catering to kind of a higher end person. And they do a lot more of the in-person stuff. You know, one thing they always hit on, which I think people dismiss, but their alteration business is huge. And people yeah. come in, you know, just to get alterations and they've got the personal shopper for a lot of it, who, who's really giving you kind of a personal touch to that thing. And yeah. when I think about something like, you know, Sears is probably the most famous department store bankruptcy. And a lot of that was driven by uh, Eddie Lampert. I think he saw the future really clearly and he executed really poorly if you go look back at his things. But Sears was also a ton of class C models, right? Like yeah. they, they were so poorly positioned for the future. And if you think, you know, ignoring at some point, hopefully COVID goes away and kind of you can resume in-person experience and stuff. But if you think that's the future, I do think there's something uh, about Nordstrom specifically, specifically that positions them well. And then yeah. just playing off that point, uh, you know, if I said on the back of COVID a year from now, 18 months from now, things start normalizing. Do you think there's a chance that Nordstrom's is like kind of reporting super normal profits for a while because the competitive landscape is just so wiped out, you know? People who would normally go to the mall and shop, shop at JCPenney on one end and Nordstrom on the other, the JCPenney's gone, so they just go and they spend 50% extra at Nordstrom. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think, um, you know, that's definitely one of the, the upsides of this uh, of this investment thesis. And I was going to mention, too, I mean, Nordstrom does have 13 million, you know, loyalty mem- members, too, which yep, to yep. is one about why why would they be one to, to survive? I mean, that's not a... Not a huge number, but when you you know when you sign up for a private label credit card with Nordstrom, right? They've got a, a lot of data, and as a customer, you're kind of making a commitment that you want to be a loyal customer. Um, so I think they do have kind of that built-in customer base too, which which is helpful just in you know in weathering this time and um, you know looking a, two, a year or two out. But yeah, to your to your point, um, you know when you look at Lord and Taylor and Barney's and Nema Marcus and you know, Saks and JCPenney's closing stores and Macy's closing stores. Um, and, you know, and Nordstrom has closed 16 full line stores in the last couple of months out of, you know, now down to a hundred. Um, you know, it should be a lot less competitive and, 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 and then they've cut a lot of costs, right? I mean, they've, uh, I think they come into the year plan and cut 200 to 250 million of, of costs and add it, you know, and then cut an extra 250 million. So you're up to 500 million of, of kind of cash, cost cuts this year when you consider that the 
you know, the EBITDA estimate for next year is a billion, right? I mean, they basically cut half their half their way to uh, to the to the EBITDA estimate for for next year. Um, and uh, so I think, yeah, to, to your to your point, I mean, if if sales are anywhere near kind of normal, um, which they could be helped by a lot of these competitive closures, and and you pair that with pretty significant cost cuts and then lapping all the, the capex that they've been spending on, on New York city store and everything else, there could be super normal profits for, for a period. Um, so, you know, who knows exactly what that looks like, but I think there's, there's definitely some upside there. Let's talk valuation for a second. And it's one of the things I don't like to do the most on the podcast. Cause you know, when I say, Oh, this trades for, I think you could earn $5 per share next year and it trades for a hundred. So it's that 20 times, like, that doesn't really flow well when people are listening. Like this is mainly audio. Even if you're YouTube, yep. you can see our face, but it's not like there are numbers yep. flashing up. Right, and right. I, I think it's important. Like how Nordstrom's has been shelled out. Like how cheap is Nordstrom's if we're looking at this on a normalized basis? Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways you can look at it. And I think, um, you know, again, I, I think you can kind of throw 2020 out as just a, as kind of a crazy year, but you know, if, if you consider they did, you know, a billion and a half, um, of EBITDA last year. And, and, uh, if you look at the operating cash flow, you know, they've done over a billion of operating cash flow, I think for 11 years in a row, mm-hmm. um, they did a, a billion two last year. Um, so, you know, and then I think CapEx now, if you look at kind of what they're talking about CapEx, they, they'd cut 30% of CapEx this year, but you're probably at, you know, 450 million of CapEx on, a you know, on a go forward basis. I mean, if you ask yourself, can they get back to, you know, billion of operating cash flow, and uh, you know, or, or more, um, and capex of four hundred fifty million. Maybe now interest expenses is kind of one hundred fifty million, but that's you know, that's kind of baseline. And then, um, uh, you know, what what could what could kind of the the upside be of sales materialize in some way, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm you know if I look at so EBITDA in 2019 was was 1.4 billion and and now people are kind of expecting 2021 is just over a billion. So, you know, you, you kind of you're down pretty significantly um, versus a normalized 2019. And then um, you know again with the cost cuts in there um, of you know 500 million, um, can they do a billion of a billion of EBITDA? Um, at some point in the future, I mean, it's not going to be this year. Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's year beyond that. But uh, that that definitely seems reasonable. And then, um, you know, kind of the low, I guess, the low multiple that this company's historically traded has been like four and a half, five times EBITDA. So, right there, you're kind of at a high teens, um, you know, high teens stock price. If you get yep. just a kind of low, historically low valuation on pretty depressed estimates. Right. And so I guess, again, the question comes back, you know, do they survive? I think with a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet and the debt that's pretty far, um, you know, termed out in the future, I think they do, you know, I think they'll, they'll survive. And then you just look at kind of what are these kind of very base case or pessimistic case scenarios. Um, and even those lead to pretty decent upside from, from where the stock is now. And then, you know, yeah. If you if you just think back, they can get, get back to a 2019 type of uh, EBITDA at some point and put a five or six times EBITDA multiple on it. You know, then you get to pretty pretty substantial upside. And you can do the same thing with you know operating cash flow minus capex. Um, you know, you can get to to pretty high cash flow yield. So yeah. So I, and I'm just going to summarize. So I think the simplest one of the simpler ways is I look at this and say at today's price of call it thirteen dollars per share. Mm-hmm. It, the enterprise value is approaching five billion dollars. In mm-hmm. 2019, they did about 1.4 billion of EBITDA. So you're yep. paying like three and a half times EBITDA if you ever think they can get to 2019 levels. Yep. You know, you, you can slice it up a bunch of different ways. Earnings per share was about three dollars and twenty cents in 2019. Yep. So yep. you're paying, you know, four times earnings, four times EPS if they ever do the 2019 levels. So yeah, what, what we're basically yep. saying is, hey, like if you ever think they can get close to where they were last year, which I, I hope we've started to build the case and we can build it further that they will. This is a four times earning stock. And, you know, yep. four times earning stocks, radio stations are four times earning stocks, right. you know, right. like uh, something with a hundred years of durable brand. And what we think is uh, a lot of physical touch points. And yes, not everything going in their favor, but a lot of the 
the stuff in the world that's changing actually is kind of plays into how they've traditionally been valued. I think that's kind of how you, you look at this thing. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And I was going to, I mean, one other interesting point is, is, you know, management gave guidance for 2020 yeah. um, on March 3rd, which was basically, you know, right before the world <laughs> fell apart, but which kind of gives they you- They were inter- liars within four days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it gives you an interesting insight into kind of what they thought was possible for, yeah. for 2020, I guess, had 2020 turned out to be more more normalized. You know, they were talking about 325 to 350 um, in, in earnings. And then, you know, I think- um, yeah, they guided the free cash flow like 750 million, um, you know, after CapEx. And now keep in mind, Cap, you know, their CapEx is got is has been cut 30%. Um, so, you know, if they, again, if those are kind of reasonable uh, ideas of what a normalized year could look like, then yeah, the stock is, um, is really cheap. And, you know, again, management's incentive comp, I think was, was at least for last year, you know, in the, in the most recent proxy was based on even, higher numbers than that. Um, you know, I think it was one, 1.5 billion EBITDA or something similar to that. So anyway, yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways you can, can kind of look at it. And if they get anywhere close to kind of this guidance or the historical numbers, then, then the stock is, is really cheap. Yeah. And, and then the other last thing I'll add here is, you know, we talked earlier about these generational investments they made, you know, they, they sunk over $500 million, they said, into opening a New York City store that yep. opened October, 2019, right? So we've been seeing 2019 earnings levels where, you know, if we had been talking in December, we would have said 2019 earnings is a trial level because yeah. we we put these massive generational investments and it wasn't just uh, NYC. NYC was the headliners, but there were other things. We put these massive generational investments that, you know, opening a new, York, new store takes about two years to really start to pay off and to build up the foot traffic. You would have been looking to 2022 as kind of, hey, this is the year our New York City investments and all these other things say. So we're saying they get back to 2019 and I think that could, in some ways, says they're getting back to a much lower level just because that New York City store is starting to pay off. Does that make sense? Or do you disagree yeah. with any of that? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, I know you, you, you'd written about it a little bit, but yeah, they were expecting some some uplift in in sales in the New York area from from opening the store and then obviously just the, the reduced CapEx um, after getting that done. So yeah, I mean, to your point, kind of definitely peak CapEx last year, right? So you're coming down big time uh, off of that. And then um, hopefully, uh, yeah, uh, uplifted sales in a, in a normalized environment. Uh, and then another piece, just moving into the into a little bit more in depth in Nordstrom, you know, when I say Nordstrom, I think most people think Nordstrom, the, the full price department store. But uh, another piece that I'm really interested in is Nordstrom Rack, their off price business. You know, mm-hmm. I think when you you mentioned TJ Maxx earlier, TJ Maxx is in several thousand stores. Nordstrom Rack is not even in 300 stores yet. But, you know, yep. uh, I, I think that is a growing piece of the business that's really attractive, really interesting. Could you talk a little bit more about the Nordstrom Rack off price business and how you look at that? Yeah, um, you know it's a third of their sales overall, and and uh, they don't break out the mo- margin profile of, of rack versus full line. But um, you know that segment overall, it seems you know you can just look at the success that TJ Maxx and Ross have had in, in the U.S., and it seems like that's kind of the big uh, or one of the big you know retail um, tailwinds or, or sectors that's done done really well. And I think brick and mortar stores people appreciate that treasure hunt experience and, and the value that, that comes with it. And so, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, again, I guess, as I was saying earlier, my, my bigger concern is that even on 250 stores compared to TJ Maxx with 3000 or Ross with 1600 or whatever, I mean, they just haven't Nordstrom rack hasn't grown as fast as kind of the, the really, um, kind of well-operated off-price retailers. I mean, you put Burlington in that category as well. Um, but uh, you know, I think yeah, there's definitely opportunity. There's there's some synergy there with uh, clearing out uh, merchandise from the, the full line stores, and then uh, there's a, a press release Nordstrom had out last week. But they've been working at fulfilling online orders from Rack.com mm-hmm. from the Rack stores, and then you know if you order something from Nordstrom.com, you can pick it up at the Rack. And so I think they're just getting better at kind of using that retail footprint to. Um, to fulfill orders, to use that inventory more effectively, and then to offer the customer more convenience. Um, so I think that's all positive. And you know, Rack and or sorry, uh, TJ Maxx and Ross really have never, um, you know, they don't have a big 
online business, right? So that might be an opportunity I think, for the rack to um, to kind of you know exploit their their strengths and um, and be kind of the leader in off price online. They have the Outlook, uh, which is kind of a flash sale website, which also you can you know return to the rack, which is convenient. And um, so I think there's there's some opportunities there. Hopefully they can can capitalize on. Um, and, and kind of take a lead in that in that off price online business. Yeah, and you mentioned the synergies between the rat can take excess inventory from full price Nordstrom and kind of help liquidate that, right? So that that puts yeah. you in a better inventory, better better positions managing all that and stuff. And I think one of the things that attracted me to Nordstroms is this: some of the parts argument, right? Like full price gets a different multiple than off price, and there's some real estate in there, and then they own some other stuff, but. When you do the whole sum of the parts, I think it comes out, it's a company trading at four times EBITDA, right? Like it's not hard to get a sum of the parts higher than this. But uh, one of the things I think the company would argue, and you started to dive into it, is there's synergy between having these two pieces together. When somebody shops at Racks and joins the Nordstrom's club, they are more likely to go buy at full price Nordstrom. Or, you know, you can buy online, pick up in store, all that type of stuff. How much do you think like the sum of the parts understate the opportunity because of those synergies there, whether it's on the cost side or the customer side or, or just any piece of that? Yeah, um, you know, that's a good question. I think, you know, the sum of parts is always tough because I, I don't think they'd be able to split the two up. You know, I, I don't think they could monetize rack and get some fair value because I, I just don't think, you know, the Nordstrom name, you know, being being separated, uh would work. I, I doubt, you know, the family would, would, would go, uh, go for that. But, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, you, you hit it and you're right up. I mean, you know, one times revenue on a, on a pretty kind of normalized level is, uh, for the rack is worth more than the, the company, the whole, as a whole right now. And, you know, TJ Maxx and Ross trade, trade well above one times revenue. So uh, I think that's, um, you know, that, that's an argument that, that makes sense. And, uh, uh, just again, for looking at, the, you know, the downside protection and, um, uh, yeah. And then, you know, there's some real estate value, you know, as, as Nordstrom owns, um, I think 30, 33 of their full line yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, locations or owns a land under the building. And, um, you know, again, hard to know how much equity value might be in that real estate and if they could ever, monetize it. But, uh, you know, again, just in terms of downside protection, hopefully that provides a little bit more. And, um, so, you know, some of the parts, I guess I don't, I, I don't really, that's not how I would, you know, I, I kind of value the, it, the company as a whole and the, and the earnings and cash flow potential, you know, as, as a whole business. But I do think it's a, it's an interesting exercise, especially when you think about just the, the downside protections of if things really went haywire, would they just try and, you know, sell some real estate, sell, you know, sell the rack if they, if they're open to it, maybe, but, uh, but yeah, it's a good exercise. No, I, I don't, I don't disagree. What about, do you think, I believe what they say is somebody who shops at rack ends up spending four times the amount of money or like is four times as more likely to shop at Nordstrom full price. Mm-hmm. Do you, some of that is because you shop at rack and you can get enrolled in the Nordstrom's club and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Do you think that Rack actually benefits the full price the division as much as they talk about? You know, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I guess all you can do is take them at, at face value because you you never really know. And as you know, as the, somebody that starts shopping at the Rack really move up to start shopping at uh, um, at the full line store. I mean, maybe that's possible. Maybe once you're just ingrained in the in the loyalty program, and if you hit sign up for the credit card, you're just more incentivized to shop across all their brands. Um, and that's, that's positive. And, um, you know, I think they did that in investor day a couple of years back and they have a couple of slides in their slide deck. That's on that, on that point, just to help how much more valuable that that customer is that shops across, uh, multiple channels. But, um, you know, I, I think hopefully they can, um, you know, if they, if they make the, the whole ecosystem more convenient, right. With this buy online, pick up in store, and you know, fulfilling you know using inventory across the channels to fulfill online orders, and you know you can return at any location, you can pick up at any location. I mean, maybe for that customer that's kind of agnostic to um, full price versus online, you just make make their life a lot easier, a lot more convenient, and hopefully there is more synergy and more synergies coming as they as they get better at kind of fulfilling from all these different channels and. Um, 
uh, you know, and then doing the pickup and store and all that. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, it, it's a, it's an opportunity. Hopefully it's one that they, they can see more benefit from here in the next, um, three, six, 12 months as they, as they, as they improve their systems. Yeah. It, the re, the reason I just wonder about that synergy is like, you know, a, I do think the future is like weirder bundles, like Amazon, who would have ever thought combining Amazon, which is like a retail business with Amazon video, which is a Netflix competitor. Like yeah. you wouldn't really think of those two as natural complements to a bundle, but it does yeah. make sense when you're bringing down the cost of kind of a uh, prime membership to get people in that prime thing where they're going to spend four times more. And when I look at Nordstrom with Nordstrom rack, like if there is actually that synergy yeah. and you, I think you mentioned earlier, like you know, Amazon bought Whole Foods, maybe somebody ends up, an online player buys Nordstrom. If you are seeing signs of a Nordstrom Rack customer results in synergies for Nordstrom, you could apply that to buy Nordstrom and there might be synergy to a whole host of like weird online things, you know, like just one random one I haven't even thought about, but Nordstrom and Spotify, like Spotify buys Nordstrom and then they have like, they can ship out merch and use in person and it reduces the bundle. But I don't know, but you could see some type of weird synergy like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, anything's possible in this, in this day and age. And, uh, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, there could be some companies you never would have considered, considered, uh, as potential acquirers for, for Nordstrom. And I think, um, you know, again, I think the, the, the real estate is, is interesting. If somebody wanted, you know, some class A, some good class A locations. And I think the the vendor relationships are something else that, um, maybe kind of undervalued by wall street when you, you know, last year, Nike pulled off of Amazon, you know, one P and, um, and, you know, you can read the Birkenstock, the, that Birkenstock CEO went, went nuts on Amazon a, a couple of years ago because there was too many fakes being, yep. uh, being put up, you know, on Amazon, Amazon didn't do anything about it. So I think, you know, again, Norsham with a hundred year history of, of treating their customers well, treating their vendors well, and, and, you know, treating the product well, uh, as far as how it's presented, um, you know, they have good relationships with Nike and, and Birkenstock and, and, and a lot of these key vendor partners that, again, if somebody were to acquire the company, um, there's probably a lot of these intangibles that, that come along with it that maybe you wouldn't have access to some of these high quality brands uh, right off the bat, if that's, you know, if that's something that you wanted. Yeah. Or, or as you said, like those relationships in the retail space, like we did a podcast on Shopify a couple of weeks back and you could say like, Hey, if Shopify bought them, is that the most natural fit? Maybe not, but I could start talking you into, Hey, their synergies in Shopify can use all the, can use all their storefronts for pickup yeah. and returns for, across the entire business. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. gets them some really interesting warehouse space that they might not have had before. Yeah. And it gets them the relationships with brands where they can go, to all of their people and say, Hey, we've got this relationship with Nike. Maybe we're a preferred brand. We can offer you discounted things on Nike goods to build through your storefront or something. I don't know, but yeah. I could see how like something with this good of a brand name, this good of storefronts, how there are yep. stranger synergies with different acquirers than we would have ever thought. Maybe yep. that sounds crazy, but as you said, Whole Foods and Amazon seemed crazy until Amazon went and bought Whole Foods. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think, you know, again, with 150 square foot, uh, full line stores. I mean, could you do some interesting, you know, kind of pop-up shops and have, you yep. know, have the Shopify partners kind exactly. of set up for yep. three months in there and, and, you know, seasonally rotate in and out. I mean, there could be, could be a lot of interesting stuff to do like that. So I'm, I'm with you. Exactly. Exactly. What about, uh, you know, we mentioned there's two online, uh, two online components, Nordstrom, uh, is it Haughty Look or Hot Look? How do you spell it? Hot Look, yeah, Hot Look. And yep. uh, Nordstrom brought Trump Club. These are both yep. acquisitions. At the yep. time Nordstrom did the acquisitions, these were much hotter. These were very hot spaces. And I yep. think but through maybe a little, definitely a little bit of mismanagement and a little bit of these spaces were extremely competitive. They yep. have not worked out, but there is yep. value there. And I do think there is a future there. Can you talk about like kind of the the smaller online pieces in Nordstrom, how you look at that and how you see those going forward? Yeah, you know, again, I they don't give a lot of detail in terms of what the what the revenue are. I, I can't remember. I think they paid three hundred fifty million for Trunk Club, you they know, did, yep. a, a number of years ago, and and how it looked when the flash sale space was really hot. And you know, again, I I don't think any any you know value in the stock price is ascribed to either of those two brands. But I think it's you know it still is. Um, you know, the press release I mentioned last week where they're talking about you know you can order on Outlook and and return it to 
uh, to a rack location or a full line location, um, stuff like that, where they're still, you know, ingraining um, into just the convenience factor of uh, what the customer can do because I, you know, most flash sale sites that are still around probably don't have that, that convenience element to them or just the, the backing of Nordstrom knowing you're getting kind of high quality uh, merchandise. So I think that's all positive. And then, um, um, you know, at this point that maybe they can just, just figure out how to continue to leverage it within their, their overall ecosystem, because, um, you know, I think there, there's still a demand for it and, um, it's probably a better, you know, again, if they can, can leverage their, their platform, um, just to make those, those two brands stronger than competitors. I think that's, that's a win, but I'm definitely not, not factoring that kind of upside into my, my overall thesis. The, the one that really interests me is uh Trump club and I'll, I'll let you dive into it a little bit, but the reason I'm so interested is I look at stitch fix, which I mm. believe when Trump club, when they bought out Trump club, it was like, Trump Club and Stitch Fix were kind of number one and two at the time, or may, maybe Stitch yeah. Fix was kind of just concerned. But, you know, I, I think when you when I do Google searches, I still get a lot of hits on like Trump Club versus Stitch Fix, which is the better one and all this mm-hmm. type of stuff. And I think Stitch Fix is a, a better business, stronger, bigger than Trump Club at this point. But, you know, Stitch Fix, I, I'm just looking at my screen, is valued at three and a half billion dollars. And all yeah. of Nordstrom's is valued at like five billion dollars. And, you know, Trump Club has some value. And I do think there are synergies between Trump Club and Nordstrom's and there's optionality there. So yeah. like, how do you, Trump Club, could you talk to me about, Nordstrom's owned it for over five years now. I think they've yeah. reimagined a few times and they've started ingratiating into their stores. How do you look at that ingratiation and what are they trying to do there? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I probably don't have as much insight there as maybe you do, but, um, uh, you know, again, yeah, I mean, you can look at Stitch Fix and their and their growth. I mean, it's it's hard to, to know kind of what the value is, Um uh, for Nordstrom since they don't really, you know, break out trunk club separately yeah. and, and to, to kind of be able to value it on par with, with what Stitch Fix is doing. But, um, you know, again, I mean, Stitch Fix tells you there is, there is appetite for, for that kind of offering. And, um, you know, again, with Nordstrom having, you know, customer relationships and, and brand relationships, uh, and, and a convenience factor with the storefronts, you, you think, there should be some advantage there for Nordstrom relative to, uh, to stitch fix. But again, the question is kind of, how do you, how do you realize the value out of that? You know, how do you get wall street to, to appreciate kind of an asset that may have, may have some value and, and maybe at some point they do, um, you know, break it out or give more, more color around kind of the, the revenue or earnings potential just to, um, to maybe get, get people to, to value it, uh, assuming there is some momentum there. Yeah, I just think it like you know they've got 13 million Nordstrom Nordstrom's Club members. Uh, you get a lot of data with that membership, and you've got the yep. Trump Club, and it seems like that is the basis for a really powerful like potential offering. Where you know Stitch Fix whole thing is you select you like blue shirts by this brand, they can use that to trigger like here's all the other things we're going to start sending you subscription product. It seems like Trump Club's got a lot of that data already there, both through Trump Club and their members, and yep. through hey Stanford shops and buys this shirt. Here's 10 other guys who shop and buy this shirt. Here's 10 other things that those people buy. It right. seems they've got a, the basis of a really powerful recommendation uh, engine behind that. Yeah. And obviously, that's not a subscription business, that, which is what Trunk Club and Stitch Fix are trying to do. But you could see the parallels on how maybe Trunk Club could even have advantages over Stitch Fix. Though, I, I suppose that also comes down to a little bit of a execution and everything. Mm. Yeah. Let's see, anything yeah. else on Nordstrom that you're really excited about that you think we should be talking about here? Um, you know, I think... We hit on a lot of it, I guess. You know, the 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 digital piece of the business. Um, I guess that's a big, you know, big opportunity going forward. And we'll see. You know, if sixty percent of their sales were were digital last quarter, um, I'd love to see see them kind of execute and hopefully get up to kind of more industry type growth rates there. Um, I think they've definitely invested in it. And, you know, again, the, the buy online pickup in store has done well. Um, you know, as I'd mentioned, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, the, the Bed Bath & Beyond CEO worked at Nordstrom until 2009 um, and, you know, took over Bed Bath & Beyond a couple of years ago. And they just reported their first, you know, positive same store sales in four or five years. Um, the buy online pickup in store is doing, doing really well. And, uh, so hopefully there's, you know, there's some, some learnings there that, um, you know, he, uh, he joined the, the Bed Bath & Beyond CEO joined the Nordstrom board in April. Um, 
so hopefully, you know, again, with, you know, the digital and the, and the buy online pickup and store doing, doing well, um, uh, hopefully the execution there gets better. Uh, the other point I would make is just on kind of the, the setup here of moving, you know, they move the anniversary sale from the second quarter into the third quarter, which is a pretty big event every year. So I think, um, naturally depressed the the sales in the second quarter and, and pushed them into the third quarter. So you should be set up for, you know, a, a better third quarter than, than second quarter. And bearing in mind, they still generated, you know, positive free cash flow in the second quarter, despite that. Um, so August, you know, the anniversary sale went into August. They were at a conference, you know, uh, mid-September saying it was the best sell-through they've ever had. Um, so that's positive. I think, you, you know, you definitely margins should be good. Inventory level should be clean. I don't know how much inventory they had going into that anniversary sale, but uh, to say it's the best sell through ever, um, you know, again, in a hundred years or how, I don't know how long they've been doing the sale, but that's a good, I think that's a good sign. And then, um, you know, again, looking at just some of the competitors, some of the the data points that, that people have been um, talking about, I think, you know, September and, and um, it, you know, so far in, in October have been pretty positive for most other retailers, I would say one, you know, there's one data point that stood out to me, which was, you know, the buckle. Um, and I don't think anybody follows that company anymore, but they have 460 stores and they report their sales monthly and they, their same store sales were up uh, 23% in September. And that's, you know, mainly physical locations, 460 stores, mainly in the mall. Um, I think 40% private label, 60% branded stuff. So that's, I mean, that's a huge month and I don't think anybody's really, really talking about it. And even I think August was up, you know, 2% or something similar. And so, um, but, you know, you talk like, you know, Capri and some of these vendors, Crocs and some other, uh, other vendors that sell to Nordstrom have had, you know, have talked about improving sales and, um, you know, Tiffany last week had good, good commentary despite tourism being tough. And so, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to think the third quarter could be okay. And then, you know, fourth quarter, we'll see and maybe get more into normalized environment next year when, if there is a vaccine. Um, but yeah, it seems like, you know, maybe the top line is, is okay. And it's definitely not priced like things are okay. I mean, it's priced like things are terrible, but you, a decent top line paired with uh, some cost cuts on the bottom line. And um, I think the setup's interesting. And then the other thing we didn't talk about is just the, the change in management compensation, right? I mean, management um, kind of had incentive to, to, to kind of kitchen sink the last quarter, um, cause they traded the restricted stock for, for options that priced two days after last earnings call. So they had, had an incentive to, um, you know, maybe not say as much positive on the last quarterly earnings call, but, uh, you know, take away, there's a whole management team based now. And I think their extra exercise price is, is close to $15. So, that's even above, you know, where the stock is now. And, um, Hey, Stanford, I, I think you're cutting in and out here a little bit. See, so, yeah, we, we kind of lost volume. Oh, okay. There we go. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I was just saying that, you know, that's an, an interesting tell for, for management to, to change their compensation that way to, to get a little bit more, or equity upside. Yeah, I think my my uh, main man, Mike from Non-Gap, and uh, he was our third or fourth podcast. Everyone can yep. listen to that. I think he was the first one who identified that. I, I believe it's called bullet dodging, where our stock's at 20. We think earnings are going to be awful. We yep. we set our our options to price after we report the, op- the awful earnings so that we get a yep. really low stock price and the stock shoots up. No, I agree. You know, I, I, I A, I, I want to go back to what you said about the buckle. You know, obviously that's N of one, but I, I haven't yeah. heard anyone mention that, which is, yeah. you know, I, I think that's all physical retail is is where their sales are from. I don't believe. Yeah, it's online. it's definitely most of it. I'm not I'm not sure if they if they have a, a much of online presence, but yeah, it's mainly physical. But I'm with you know Tiffany's. I I followed that one pretty closely, and I yeah. mean their their earnings like New York City's basically shut down. And New York City's a, a pretty good piece of their earnings, and their yeah. same store sales were like way up year over year, not month over month, like year over year. That's a pretty good sign. And obviously all of these are a little bit different than Nordstrom's, but I, I do, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, we'll, we'll wrap Nordstrom on this. When I look at Nordstrom's, what I see is something that's very cheap. And I think the moment you start getting like the COVID clear signs, I, I think that's maybe it's next month, maybe it's a year from now, but I think that's when the stock really responds. And I see a great management team that's uh, 
you know, the capital allocation, I think will really benefit the stock. We haven't even talked about that, but I think that'll really benefit the stock when trends kind of get clear. That's how I look at it. Do you, do you think that's a, yeah. a decent way to put it? No, I'm with you. I think, um, you know, it's definitely, I, I, you know, good management that's that's in, aligned with, you know, with the minority shareholders and and high insider ownership and a great brand that's treated their customers right for a hundred years and has endured that and has great, you know, brand relationships. And, um, you know, I think that's all positive. And then, yeah, you come out of this with a lot less competition as a lot of their, you know, competitors have, have closed stores and not only department stores, but specialty retailers and, and everything else. And so, um, you know, I think Nordstrom survives. They have a, a loyal customer base and, um, you know, a cost base that's, that's much lower than it was last year and potential for, for big, you know, earnings upside. Just one thing on the good management, and then we'll go to Tashop. You know, one thing I, I have been thinking about is management tried to take this company, I'll say private twice, right? Uh, yeah. Two or three years ago, they tried to buy out the whole company for $50 per share. Yeah. Uh, about a year ago, they tried to not buy it out, but increase their ownership stake from about a third of shares to 50% of shares. Yeah. They tried to get the board's approval. They yeah. were going to do that in the low to mid 30s, I think. Uh, yeah. They eventually yeah. dropped that. And then just last month or two months ago, they saw that their Q2 earnings were probably going to be poor and they restructured their restricted stock to, as we talked about, to bullet dodge and get yep. this uh, and get stock options priced at a low price. Yep. So uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is this management team. And I agree. I, I think they've been pretty good stewards. They've been interested in increasing value. But when I when I look at those three things, it actually speaks more to a management team and a family that's interested in kind of creating value for themselves, maybe the minority shareholders. How do you think about that? Or do you think I'm just kind of like overreading into kind of idiosyncratic things? Yeah, you know, that could be right. I guess, hard to say, but if you look at their compensation, right? I mean, they kind of, they have an ROIC hurdle that they have to meet. And then it's basically all based off of EBIT. Um, so, you know, management is, is I think, most incentive, incentivized on, on EBIT, which, um, you know, if they have, if they, if they grow their EBIT, that's going to benefit all shareholders. Right. And I, um, so that's, you know, that's one thing. Um, and then, yeah, taking a, taking a private, I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah, maybe they, I, I don't know. That, that's hard to say. I think most shareholders would have been happy if they would have taken a private at, at 50 bucks looking back and, um, <laughs> you know, again, in in the thirties, um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. They've, they've always paid a dividend. They bought the share back, you know, bought shares back pretty, uh, pretty consistently. And so, um, maybe they're more looking out for themselves, but, uh, it, it does seem like they, they do kind of concern themselves with the minority shareholders as well. So we'll see. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah. And, and just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying earlier, I mean, they, they, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, I'd love to see an insider buy stock of, you know, board member or um, insider actually just at, at these prices, you know, step up and buy some stock. I think that'd be a big tell and, and nice catalyst. And, um, you know, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that they can't do it, but they'd also mentioned they're doing an analyst day on the, on the last call. I don't know when that is. I don't think it's on the schedule, but if they're, you know, going to host an investor day in the next couple of months, I think that's an opportunity there to, maybe give more transparency around some of the things you were talking about earlier. And that's usually a, a sign they have at least something positive to, to talk about if they're going to do a, an investor day. And then, um, yeah, I mean, you have, you know, if, if you get a vaccine, people feel more comfortable going out to shop and then they have more reasons to buy apparel and buy some of these categories that Nordstrom sells, right? I mean, if you're going out to dinner more and going, going back to work a little bit more than, then maybe you do need some, some new clothes and sort of some, some pent up demand there. Um, so we'll see. I think there's a lot of stuff that, that could happen that, that would be be positive. And, you know, they could even just reinstate the dividend or, you know, buy shares back or, or you know, pay down some debt, whatever. Um, yeah. No, th th that's one of the things I like. I, I think they've been pretty clear capital allocation on pause. But when things return, they're going to go back to their old capital allocation, which yeah. know, they, I think it's like a third of the cash flow is dividend out. And then most of the rest is returned through share repurchase. And if you think they're getting back to a billion dollars in EBITDA and they're going to you know, dividend out a third of the earnings after the capex and interest and all that and buy back two thirds at these levels, like, oh my God, I'm getting all my money back in several years. So yeah, that's interesting. Let's move on to tile shop. You know, the, spend five minutes there. Uh, I, I call this Finchwitz favorite micro cap retailer. You know, okay. I, I think I, I put on Twitter 
we were going to talk about Nordstrom's a $5 billion retailer and <laughs> Tile Shop a you know $100 million retailer and all the questions were on Tile Shop. So okay. uh, I, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but maybe just you know two seconds. What yeah. is Tile Shop? Why is Finchwit so bullish on the Tile Shop? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I didn't realize it was Fintwit's favorite uh, company, but that's that's interesting. Um, but yeah, history is, you know, it's it's been around since 1985. Started by Bob Rucker, who is the founder, and um, it, it went public in 2012. And it was kind of a Wall Street, you know, darling when it went public, and uh, it, you know, kind of unique um, retail format. And they, you know, they sell hard flooring and. Um, and that was, and then there was, you know, there was a big short report and I, um, you know, I'd covered this company pretty closely back then, but, uh, there was a, a short report about some insider, uh, relationships. The CEO's brother-in-law was getting kickbacks from, a uh, tile vendor and just a bunch of crazy stuff. And then the you know execution was poor and, um, stock just got, got crushed and it was kind of left for dead, some management turnover and, and, um, uh, and, and not great execution. And, um, and, and like I said, I had followed it and I just kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't that close to it. And then I saw, you know, last month, uh, B Riley, which is a company I, I follow closely. Yep, um, same here, same here. but, um, you know, they filed a 13 D and I think initially bought, you know, over 5% and then they filed a couple 13, you know, D amendments since then and, and are up to 8% ownership. And, and so that, that piqued my interest just because I, you know, wonder what they were seeing. And then obviously just from following all the kind of home related, um, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's and, and home improvement companies and home retailers, furnishings, all those companies are doing really well. I mean, it seems like housing's got the obvious tailwinds of people wanting more space and, um, you know, get, get out of the, the cities where you're taking public transportation and elevators and all that stuff. So, Anyway, I knew housing was good, so I, you know, I looked into it, and this is another one where same kind of scenario as as uh, as Nordstrom, where second quarter probably the worst possible quarter, sales are down twenty five percent, but they still generated eight million dollars of EBITDA and like seventeen million of, of free cash flow. Um, so I, you know, I, I like that if it, if you go through that stress test and you prove that you know you acted, they acted, the management team was able to act nimbly and. Um, and still generate cash in, in in the worst possible quarter. And then looking forward, as you look at kind of existing home sales and everything else, their key metrics, and then what these other retailers are saying, you'd think that third quarter should be substantially better um, than the second quarter. Um, and then, you know, even annualizing a depressed, you know, EBITDA level from second quarter, the stock's really cheap, especially compared to floor and decor, or lumber liquidators, or some of the other publicly traded uh, comps. And then, you know, there was a, a crazy event last year. I don't know if you want to go into it, but yeah, they, you know, they, they proactively delisted, um, at the end of, I think it was October, 2019. Um, the, the, you know, the board of management decided to delist, stop the, the share buyback, stop the dividend stock got crushed. It was down, you know, in the, in the ones. Um, and then the two, two big, um, holders who are on the board, you know, they bought, you know, as aggressively as they could from like the day after that until um, maybe it was four or five weeks, they were, they were buying aggressively, both increased their ownership quite a bit. And then a, a shareholder lawsuit was filed, which prevented them from continuing to buy. But um, I mean, just an interesting dynamic that uh, they obviously saw the value there and wanted to own a lot more, which, um, you know, as I, as I look back on that, that's a pretty a pretty good sign. And then, um, you know, fast forward that, that shareholder lawsuit was just settled, um, actually a couple of days ago, but, uh, that's positive. That's out of the way. You know, the, the inside of those insiders are prevented from buying stock in the open market, I think for three years. So they don't have the same incentive to try and, you know, crush the stock again so they could, could add to their holdings. And then some of the court documents show that they, you know, they were just trying to fix the business up so they could, could sell it. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a good business with, you know, 140 stores that have a, a unique concept and in the right place, the right tailwinds. Um, you got a lot of insider ownership The two, you know, two board members own 30% between the two of them. And then the, that founder who's no longer on the board, but he owns 10%. B Riley now owns 8%. I mean, B Riley is, I think a pretty strategic investor. So you've got, um, a lot of insider ownership, and you know a, a cheap stock with good tailwinds 
And correct me. So I know the the chairman Peter Kamen, who's got a, mm-hmm. a long, long history with microcap value investors. Yeah. Uh, the court, as the court docs, as you said, said, "Hey, look, he took this private with the goal, and he admitted this in court, right? Like with yeah. the goal of we're going to spruce this up and sell it a year or two, three down the line or something." Yeah. When I say, "Hey, we're going to spruce this up and sell it uh, a year, two, three down the line," today the share price is three dollars and forty cents per share. What does this look like in a sale? You know, that's, that's a good question. I think, um, it, you know, it depends, you know, floor and decor trades at 25 times EBITDA, right? So, I mean, if you bought, if you bought this company for 10 times EBITDA, 12 times EBITDA, there's quite a, quite a lot of synergies there. And you take out, you know, public company costs on a small company and, and some other synergies. I mean, uh, Tile Shop put in a ERP system at the beginning of 2019, which kind of led to some, uh, some hiccups, I think with the, the, the retail experience. And so maybe, um, maybe there's some synergies there with a, a bigger company that could just improve the the systems. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, who knows what this might be worth, worth to some, maybe you could, you could buy some, some EBITDA on the cheap. You could buy a, a decent brand and, you know, some, some retail know-how, some vendor relationships, um, or, you know, just private equity make, do, doesn't make sense just to, to buy some, some cash flow. Um, hard to say, there's probably a lot of potential outcome the, there. You mentioned, uh, B Riley, who I, I follow, uh, quite closely yep. as well. You mentioned yep. them coming in here and you called them a strategic investor. So, you know, I, I do think they have the potential to be a strategic investor, but the B Riley, you know, it's FBR Riley. They are an investment yep. bank, trading shop, research firm, all that type of stuff. Yep. In what ways do you think they could be a strategic investor? Yeah, got it. Sorry, and that's what I, f- I forgot to mention on your uh, list of potential acquirers. There, I mean, B Riley's worked um, with the uh, FRG um, franchise group, who's you know acquired Vitamin Shop and uh, Sears Outlet and and some other kind of retailers that um, you know may look to, to to franchise those locations. And so, I guess that could be another potential um, acquirer that would make sense. And, and B Riley's worked closely with those guys. So it's interesting to see, you know, B Riley take that, take that stake. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Bryant Riley, who's the CEO of, of B Riley is on the board of another company that does, uh, you know, works mainly with home builders doing, you know, flooring and, and cabinets, and then also does a lot of countertops for, for remodel and that sort of thing. So I think he's got pretty good insights into, um, you know, into what's going on with yeah. home home improvement. So that's interesting. And then, you know, B Riley, uh, you know, as, as a bank and, and on the sell side covers, you know, housing and a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the vendors. And so they could pick up coverage, a tile shop, or again, could have some, some insights there, which are interesting. Um, so that, you know, there's that aspect. And then there's also just the downside protection that comes with now B Riley, you know, I think the tile shop balance sheet's in pretty good shape, but should they need to, to raise capital or do anything else? Um, hopefully B Riley would be a, a good partner to help on that front. Just again, a little bit more, more downside protection um, if they need to raise capital. So I think those are, you know, those are some ways um, that, that B Riley strategic. Perfect. Well, hey, Stanford, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. You're the first person we've got to cover two ideas on one there podcast. So nice. I might have been a little bit more to talk title shop. But look, this, this has been a ton of fun. I'm going to be sure, you know, I, I said at the beginning, I've really enjoyed rational research. I'll, I hope uh, everybody signs up and gives it a chance. It's been a, it's been a really value add subscription for me. The price is free, so it's tough not to be value add on that. There but uh, this has been great. And, you know, I hope a year from now we have you on and we're talking about Nordstrom's Returning to 2019 earnings level, tile shop maybe getting sold, and we'll, we'll just have a new <laughs> idea to talk about. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, it was fun. Have a good one, man. You too. Thank you.